Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. This is episode 36 with the TriDoc, Dr. Jeff Sankoff. Dr. Sankoff is a Denver, Colorado emergency physician, husband, and father. He says he happened upon TriSports as an adult and has slowly but surely risen through the age group ranks to participate in the most prestigious races, including the Hawaii Ironman in Kona, Hawaii, and multiple Olympic distance world championships. In addition to being an inspiration to the everyman and woman masters athlete with a hard job who finds happiness and passion in endurance sports, Dr. Sankoff is also the host of the TriDoc podcast. Dr. Sankoff agreed to join us on the Wise Athletes podcast in order to share his learnings as a medical doctor and as a high-performing masters athlete. We talk about common mistakes, where to focus limited time, as well as his thoughts on how to extend athletic performance late into life. He is a real pro with a ton of information that will certainly help us all. All right, let's talk to the TriDoc. All right. Well, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast, Dr. Sankoff. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, welcome. Yes, yes. Glad to have you. And uh, Glenn, welcome. Very good to see you, Joe. Yes, good to see you too, sir. Back from the national championships, are you, Glenn? Indeed, yes. Yes, our Masters National Championships were in Albuquerque this weekend. Oh, and, uh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Smoky conditions? Smoky. Well, it was beautiful on Saturday, but on Sunday it was 184 smog index. So it was, you couldn't see more than about a mile and a half down the road. It was so bad. Okay. Well, too bad. Too bad for that. All right. Well, let's get into this thing. Uh, Dr. Sankoff, as you may know, the focus of the Wise Athletes podcast is older athletes and how they can improve athletic performance today and retain their athletic capability for a long time. And I've taken to call on the subject athletic performance longevity, but anybody else might just recognize it as a sort of intersection between health span and athletic performance. Uh, before we dive into that, though, um, I, I think it would be useful if you just told our audience a little bit about your background. Can you do that? Sure. So uh, professionally, I'm an emergency physician. I actually am from Montreal, where I trained and did uh, both medical school and residency in emergency medicine, and uh, also did some training in critical care medicine. And that's where I actually learned about and initially got involved in triathlon and have been doing triathlon for over 20 years now. Nice. Uh, soon after I finished my training, uh, my wife and I moved down here to Colorado where I have had the pleasure of living uh, on the front range uh, yeah. and participating in endurance and multi-sport for all of that time. Awesome. I was quite content being a middle of the packer, or MOPer as I like to say, for most of uh, that time. But over the last uh, probably six, seven years, uh, since my kids have gotten a little bit older, since I've had a little more time to dedicate to training, I have uh, started to be able to be much more consistent in my training and my performances have uh, improved commensurate to that. So I, uh, over the last several years, have uh, regularly qualified for the 70.3 World Championships and nice. have won qualification at Kona and um, have been close to a second and hoping to get a second in the next year or so uh, for Kona. Um, I started uh, doing my own podcast to do the TriDoc podcast, which yeah. is uh, a podcast on the intersection of health, fitness, and triathlon. And yeah. I started coaching. I do TriDoc coaching. I'm a coach with uh, Life Sport Coaching, which is a company that's owned and operated by uh, Hall of Fame coach uh, Lance Watson. Uh, so I'm very involved with multi-sport, uh, both as an athlete, a coach, podcaster, and it's something that I enjoy very much. Awesome. Well, that's great. Um, I'm very pleased to have you on Wise Athletes. Thanks. 
I think your perspective as a medical doctor who is also a high-performing master's athlete should give you powerful insight into the question of balancing athletic performance with overall health for the older athlete. It's not as simple as just training as hard as you can and everything will work out optimally, is it? It's really not. Uh, You know, I've learned uh, as somebody who kind of blossomed late uh, as a high performer, uh, I've learned the importance of recovery. I've learned uh, how to deal with injuries and how injuries are, uh, you know, more common uh, when you're older and that uh, you have to be more patient with how you manage them. Uh, I also learned that uh, the injuries that we get uh, in the older age groups are not the same as the injuries you tend to get when you're younger. Um, and that's okay. It's just uh, a fact of uh, performing at this age. But I've also learned that age is not as much of a limiter as I once thought it was. I know that when I was in the 30s age group uh, and into the 40s age group, I, you know, I kept wondering when the ceiling would be, when I would start to see a decrement in my performance. And I used to believe quite strongly that that would be in the mid to late 40s. And yet here I am, approaching my mid-50s, continuing to put up faster times than I ever did. And that's, um, and, and that's already in the face of performing quite well in my late 40s and early 50s. Here I am at 54, uh, continuing to improve, to best my yeah. performances time-wise. Well, what do you attribute that to? You earlier said consistency in your training. Is there anything else? Honestly, it's more than anything, it's consistency and quality. Uh, I just uh, have realized in my preparations for returning to Ironman, I was out of Ironman. I was doing half Ironmans for a very long time with with family. It was especially with younger kids. Ironman was just too much of an endeavor. Uh, It was putting a big strain on my family life. And so I stepped stepped back from doing Ironman. And quite frankly, I enjoyed doing half Ironmans. And then uh, when I started having a lot of success at the half Ironman distance, my coach suggested I return to Ironman. As a family, we decided that was something we wanted to do. And I realized that when I was really consistent and, and not taking, you know, I used to take like four or five months off of training. I would just do, you know, all winter long, not really train very much. Huh. And I, when, I, when, I, when I went back to Ironman, I didn't do that. I trained throughout the year and I trained at a pretty high level. And I realized that that consistency led to much better performances, but it also led to injury resistance. It led to um, just overall better fitness, better quality of life. I mean, it was just all around uh, a better thing for me. Uh, I recognize that I may be a little bit of an outlier. Not everybody is going to respond the same way. But for me, it's just been this consistent, high-quality workouts throughout the year, definitely taking some time during the winter months of lower volume to recover and rehabilitate from the wear and tear of a season. But by maintaining you know, a real focus on, uh, on keeping consistent. And, you know, I, I, I don't really take days off. I believe that active recovery has contributed a lot to injury resistance for me. So okay. a recovery day for me is just an easy workout as opposed to taking days off. And I think that's, that's been a, a, a real benefit for me. Has there been any element of making sure that your hard workouts are not too hard, that you're getting sort of that minimum effective dose, and then that puts a cap on the amount of recovery you need, or is that just something I made up? 
Uh, no, I mean, I listen to my body. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't stack hard workouts anymore. I mean, I used to be able to, I think, uh, as we're, when we're younger, we can do that. I know that as I've gotten older, if I have a very hard workout, I need a, I need a day or two to recover before I can go back and do it again. Now, this is a little bit sport specific, right? As a triathlete, I have the luxury of being able to go back and forth between different sports. So if I have a hard bike workout, I can do a hard swim workout the next day but I can't do two hard bike workouts back to back. Um, it's hard to do bike run hard back to back, but it's easy to interject a swim workout that's difficult. So that that's okay. Um, so where I think, you know, and I do this as a coach with my older athletes, you know, I'll mix up the, the workouts in terms of intensity and volume so that you can continue to get this build without necessarily causing damage from too much of one or the other. So you might have a low volume, high intensity workout one day, and then a low intensity, higher volume workout the next day. The net effect is positive across the board, but you're not getting a significant amount of damage or wear and tear because you're allowing for recovery from one to the next. Yeah. That's sort of a natural benefit of being a triathlete is you get sort of built in cross training. Exactly. Uh, some people don't, myself included. Yeah. And, and I mean, there is a negative to it, right? I mean, like I'm a very strong cyclist among triathletes, but I am not a strong cyclist among cyclists uh, because I, I spend, you know, probably 50% of my training cycling. I have a friend who's an incredible cyclist. He's a couple of years younger than I am. And I mean, he's way stronger than I am because he spends all of his time cycling. Yeah. So I believe you mentioned Glenn was out at the national championships for cycling. I mean, I, I couldn't yeah. show up there. I wouldn't, you know, even, even if it was a TT, I probably wouldn't even register, um, you know, on the, on the results because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't hold a candle to the dedicated cyclist. But in triathlon, I do great because I put in enough hours and enough time and I'm strong enough as a cyclist amongst those who run and swim at the same time. Right. Although, you know, I'm probably a heretic for saying it. There's got to be more to life than being the very best you can be in a race. I mean, let's just talk about for a second this, um, what has been in the news for a few years now is this uh, reverse J-curve where obviously it's you get better and better health benefits from doing more and more exercise up to a point. And then uh, I'm not sure if it's solid science or or it just seems to be true that when you then start getting more than that it starts to go the other way and i'm not even sure what it's measuring is it all-cause mortality or or what what do you know about that so the reverse j-curve is very real uh i, I just want to go back to one thing you, you just said which is that there has to be something more than just winning and you're absolutely right i mean everybody does this for different reasons right i mean i think that uh, I, I know plenty of people. In fact, most of the athletes that I coach are not in it to win it. Most of them are in it for other reasons. Uh, there's a lot of self-gratification for doing this. There's most, most people that do triathlon are in it competing against themselves, not against everyone else. Yeah. Uh, I had a discussion with a colleague of mine. And, you know, I, I think that those of us who are competing for the top levels in our age group or the top levels in a race, we, we represent a very small fraction of the 2000 or so people that participate in a race. And I think everybody who shows up has their own reasons and they're all valid. But to get back to your main question about the reverse J curve, it is very real. It principally relates to cardiac when it comes to exercise. The reverse J curve can be found in a lot of things. 
there are reverse J curves related to. Um, so whether, let me just say a reverse J curve. What it what it means is pretty much what you kind of said uh, that if you take something, a dose of something, in this case, it's exercise. As you increase the dose, you see an increase in benefit uh, in terms, and in this case, we're talking about cardiac benefit. So as you increase the amount of exercise you do per week, up to around 10 hours per week, you will see an, an overall improvement in cardiac health resulting in uh, increase in life expectancy, decrease in uh, cardiac events, etc. Uh -huh. After about 10 hours per week, you start to see an actual decrease in the amount of benefit. It's not that it becomes harmful. It's just that it starts to become less of a benefit. Yeah. And I want to be clear about that because, so basically what it's saying is, let's say at eight hours, at eight hours of exercise a week, you get a benefit of, I'm just going to make up a number just to make it easy to understand. At eight hours of, of exercise a week, you get a benefit of six. At 10 hours of benefit a week, you get an, a benefit of eight. And then at 12 hours of benefit a week, you get an, uh, sorry, 12 hours of exercise a week, you get a benefit again of six. So you can imagine yeah. how the line goes up and then it starts to come down again. But it's not that the number is coming down and becoming negative. It's just that the net benefit becomes less than if you did a little bit less exercise. That's what a reverse J-curve is. It's always better than being sedentary. Exactly. And that's really the most important point. It's never that exercising so much actually becomes you know, dangerous. It's just that you lose the maximal benefit by exercising yeah. more. And the reason for that with exercise is because there are changes in the heart. We know that athletes' hearts lead to a little bit of hypertrophy, and that can lead to some degrees of some potential um, Zinn, I think his name is, is the bike manufacturer. Yeah. He had a, he's a famous individual who exercised a lot, was a very healthy guy, but ran into problems with his heart because he had yeah. this, he was one of the people who had yeah. these problems related exactly. to cardiomyopathy from too much exercise. Our own Glenn Winkle with us has the, had the same condition. Ah. I, I developed that in yeah, 2004. So it was quite interesting. It did. It was, it was, both good and bad, obviously, but I learned a lot about my cart that I didn't know beforehand. And it also gave me a basis to understand that whole idea of overtraining because I was doing a lot of overtraining back then. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, and I think it's, it's an important concept, but really the reality has got to be more nuanced than that. I mean, if you did, if it was 10 hours was the number, but it was 10 hours of high intensity intervals, then that's probably too much. Plus, if you're only doing, you know, long, slow miles, then 10 hours probably isn't the maximum. To, to get the maximum benefit. So it's a concept, I think, more than it's an actual number for a particular person. How well are they recovering? How hard are they going? You know, that whole mix of things. You're correct. They don't really get into those kinds of nitty gritty because it's kind of hard when you do these population studies because sure. what they're doing is they're looking at people and they're saying, well, how much did you exercise? And what was your, you know, it's not, these aren't very tightly controlled trials because you can't do them, right? right. You, can't, you can't study people over 30 years. So what they're doing is they're doing retrospective things and saying, how much did you exercise? Um, and it is hard to control for the type of exercise that people are doing. And we know that the harder you push your heart in a particular session, um, the better benefit you get, but the higher risk there is as well. 
So there's always this trade-off. And I, I want to go back to something I started to say before, which is to emphasize this reverse J-curve exists for a lot of things. Sure. It exists for alcohol as well. For food, uh, probably. You know, alcohol, for, there's many foods, right? There are, like, alcohol is a great example where if you drink a small amount of alcohol per day, you actually get a protective effect against all kinds of different diseases. But once you cross a threshold, that protective effect begins to decrease. And with the case of alcohol, it actually does become detrimental. Yeah. So there are many, many things that have reverse j oh, sure. Exercise is just one. Well, I was just making sort of a funny point, but I think it's still true, is that you know food has a reverse J-curve. Having no food is very bad for you. And then the more that you have up to a point is better. And then it starts to not be as good for you. That's a great point. Yeah. I, I, and I think that's, that's what I, you know, when people see a reverse J curve for exercise, they get a little worried and they start to think, oh, I can't work more. I can't do more than 10 hours, especially as, you know, an older individual, because I don't want it to be bad. But the take home, I think for reverse J curve with exercise is it doesn't cross into negative. And, and that's, yeah. that's really an important thing to remember. Yeah. And, and there probably are some things that individual athletes can do to make sure that they are uh, recovering that they're not doing too much, too hard, that sort of thing. You know, HRV is is sort of a, a big thing these days of, you know, for making sure that you've recovered well, sort of centrally, I guess, uh, as opposed to like, are your muscles still tired kind of a thing. Uh, do you use HRV in, in your management? I don't. Uh, heart rate variability to me, I think the jury's still out in terms of how, you know, the problem with heart rate variability that I have, so I, I have a colleague or a good friend of mine is a, is, is a four, is very well renowned as a researcher in HRV uh, in critical care medicine. And we've talked a lot about this. And, um, you know, the problem, so we, the problem in medicine and the, and the reason HRV sort of came to the forefront was because you know, in medicine, we, we're very linear in our thinking. We say, oh, if the heart rate is this, it's good. And if the heart rate is this, it's bad. And, and the problem is, is that physiology is not linear and heart rate variability is wonderful because heart rate variability is, is a measure of chaos, right? It's, it's looking at more advanced mathematics. It's chaotic mathematics. But the problem is, is that we have a hard time understanding chaotic theory and chaotic math. And so what we've done is we've taken HRV and we've made it linear. And we're saying, oh, if our HRV is this, it's good. And if our HRV is this, it's bad. And that's a very linear thinking on a chaotic principle. Yeah. And so... That to me is is taking away what HRV really should be telling us, and HRV is is really just one one measure. And I think that to take it in alone, and, and a lot of people do, is they take it alone. And you know, I've had many athletes say to me, "Oh, my HRV is this, so I shouldn't work out." And I'm like, "Well, how do you feel?" <laughs> and and he's like, "You know, you have to put it in context with other things." And so I don't use it. Uh, I I tend to. Um, you know, there's, there's too many, I, I think that the, the tech is not perfect in terms of measuring it. Yeah. And so I, I haven't used it. I think there's a lot of promise for it. I think that eventually, uh, we will probably be in a place where we'll know more how to interpret it and how to use it. And people who use it now, I, I certainly have no problem with it. I think it's, sure. it's one more tool. And, uh, but I, I personally still think that it, it's got a ways to go before it really becomes as good as as a lot of people think it is now. Sure, sure. Well, so obviously you've got a lot of success in your own ability to recover, not do too much, and and then um, you know set yourself back in your progression. Well, how do you do it? 
It's funny, you know, I, I spend all my time doing my podcast reviewing all of the things that other people do, and I don't do any of them. I don't do supplements. I don't do any crazy diets. I don't do intermittent fasting. I don't take anything. I don't, don't do heart rate. I just basically, I train my butt off. I'm just consistent. I rest when I need to rest. I, I just honestly, I keep it simple. So when you need to rest, it's just you feel it. You're, you're, you yeah. Feel if I if I struggle to hit a workout, so I have a coach. Even though I'm a coach, I don't trust myself. I need somebody's outside eyes. Okay. You know, I need someone to hold me accountable. Someone to say, "Hey, you look like you didn't, you know, hit that workout. What's going on?" Um, and I also need someone to say, "You know, no, you can do this. I, I want you to push a little harder next time." So, so I, that's what I need. And. I am very, you know, if I, if I do a workout, like I'll give you an example, I did Boulder 70.3 on Saturday. I had a, I have a reasonably tough bike out, bike workout today. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I got on the bike. It was no problem. I'm smashing it out. It's really great. Awesome. And so I'll tell my coach, I'll be like, this was actually great. I'm feeling really well recovered. I'm doing fine. And he will then, you know, adjust and do things. Whereas if I struggle, I'll tell him that. And I'll say, look, I had a hard time. I think I'm going to need to ease things off a little bit. So I really just, you know, I, I'm, I'm attuned to my body at this point. I know when I'm feeling well. I know when I need to back off a little bit. And again, having a coach who's looking at things and watching my data, uh, I think that's helpful as well. Awesome. Well, I, I mean, that's the best of all worlds uh, to uh, have sort of an internal sensor that actually is accurate enough that it works and you don't have to spend money or time buying and configuring things and trying to interpret what the hell does that number mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, I, I'm kind of on a, I don't know, I'm on a deep dive on this topic right now is strength training. Yeah. It's something that I did a lot. In fact, that was, you know, I, I kind of wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger when I was in high school. And so, I, you know, I spent a lot of time at Gold's Gym um, for a couple of years. But of course, uh, you know, when I got into cycling, it was all about you don't want those wastefully heavy upper body muscles. You want to be as skinny as you possibly can. So I didn't do, you know, any weight training at that point. But now I'm finding, you know, with my age and my massive amount of sitting that I do that I'm paying a price for not being balanced in my body and uh, and fit in my upper body. Um, what do you do? Strength training? I do, and I have to tell you, I'm I'm the same as you, Joe. I I you know I'm bigger. Uh, it's and you know I I I don't know. Like I show up at these races, and everybody's like little skinny minis, and I'm I'm a broad. Like I can't. I played hockey all my life, and so you know I've got broad yeah. shoulders, and you know I have a bigger build than most of the guys I'm racing against, and um, you know I was always kind of wary of doing strength training. Uh, and then I had a coach for a long time who was very, very set on it and really, really kind of schooled me on it and made me understand that strength training for endurance sport is not about mass. It's not about building, you know, yourself up and it's not about building, um, it's not about lifting heavy things, you know, over your head and, and doing that kind of thing. Instead, what it's about is it's about strengthening muscles around your joints and, and strengthening your muscles so that they're able to sustain the endurance efforts that you want to do. So it's really about mm -hmm. tone and it's about injury prevention. There's no great studies that show that strength training truly prevents injuries. In fact, the only one that I have found that really showed this was actually strengthening the muscles of the foot. 
hmm. has been shown to prevent running injuries, not just in the foot, but even in the knees and the hips, which I found really fascinating. Hmm. Um, but uh, I, I really just personally believe that doing strength training has helped me keep, you know, injury not, I mean, not free, but certainly, you know, less injury prone from all the wear and tear of running and, and all of the biking and everything I have to do for the Ironman distance. Yeah. And, and I'm a big believer in doing it. And I, I know my athletes and even myself, you know, we're time crunched. The first thing to get chopped is the strength training, even though the strength training is only like, you know, 30 to 45 minutes. And it's the first thing that goes. And I always feel bad about it. I always regret it. And I try very hard to, to put it back in as fast as I can because I always feel better. And um, I, yeah, I, I think the, the structure of the workout is really important, Joe, because like you said, you know, you don't want to get big. You don't want to be carrying around extra mass, but you can get strong without getting big. It's just a matter of how you build the workouts. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and do you do your uh, resistance training at your house? I mean, do you drive to a gym? I used to go to the gym, but you know what? It's so, first of all, the pandemic has changed that, yeah. right? And yeah. the other thing is even before the pandemic, gym equipment is not that expensive. Like just getting dumbbells, uh, getting TRX bands uh, is enough to really do a, a yeah. reasonable workout in your house. Yeah. And over time, I've actually accumulated enough equipment that I have a full sort of, you know, gym set in my house. So I can do everything in my house. That's great. Um, now gym equipment, because of the pandemic, gym equipment is really hard to come by, but you can always find stuff. And honestly, uh, I'm really happy I have it in my house because driving to the gym, I mean, already, you know, people want to cut the gym, cut the weight routine because it's 30 right. or 45 minutes. You have to drive to a gym. Yeah. You're, you know, you're adding on an extra half an hour or so each way yes having it in my house has made me much more likely to do it and um again you know it's uh it's just really easy and and, and like i said you don't need to have a huge amount of equipment if you have you know you can you can have as little as some resistance bands some trx bands and you're good to go you can do a, a basic strength set just with that and then if you add some dumbbells you're you're really doing good stuff that's great yeah, I think that that's really a key is removing all of the reasons that you might give yourself for not being consistent, or at least as many of them as you can. Right. And Joe, you know, you asked, you asked before about, you know, for older athletes, you know, I think we have to recognize that as we get older, one of the things that we can't change in biology is that, you know, muscle cells shrink. We, we don't lose the number of muscle cells, but they shrink over time. And one of the things that you can do to forestall that, that shrinkage is strength training. We know yeah. from uh, CT studies, MRI studies, that individuals who exercise maintain muscle mass better than those who don't. And individuals who incorporate any kind of resistance training keep muscle mass even better. And it has all kinds of cascading forward effects in terms of improved health, improved uh, quality of life. Like, I mean, all kinds of things. So um, really, it's, it's a great habit to get into in your 40s and 50s and to maintain it all the way through into your 60s and 70s. Um, we see, um, you know, my mom, who's in her late 70s, still does some kind of resistance training. And I, I have no doubt that it has contributed to her health and well-being because, it, you know, it's maintained her muscle mass and, and yeah. maintained her ability to, to function. Well, that's amazing. I, I wish I could say the same thing for my mom. I've been 
she's 80 and I've been trying to get her to start. And of course, you know, it's like, oh, well, you get, you get down on the floor and you do this. And she says, oh, I don't want to get down on the floor. I might not be able to get back up. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, maybe we've missed the, the window, um, yeah. but we're going to try to work through that. So yeah, sarcopenia is a thing. I mean, I, I think the leading cause of death in older people is uh, falling. And yeah. I think that comes right from having lost all your fast twitch muscle fibers and you don't, you can't move quickly and you, you don't have the power to catch yourself when you stumble. I wanted to summarize what you had said, which was interesting to me. I mean, a lot of times when you hear people talk about strength training for cyclists, it's like you get bigger power, right? You're going to be faster on the bike. And you really didn't talk about any of that. What you were talking about is it helps you to not get injured, which allows you to train more consistently, which allows you to be stronger. So rather than the weightlifting or the resistance training, making your muscles bigger so that you can be faster on the bike, all it does is it keeps you from getting off the bike so that you can continue training. Did I catch that right? You did. And I think the other thing is it also, it allows your muscles to be fatigue resistant. I don't think that strength training is all about improving your power. I think, you know, pedaling, doing, doing high, you know, high power intervals is what's about improving your power on the bike. But when you're out there pedaling for hours and hours and hours, having stronger muscles allows your muscles to weather the fatigue and, and uh, avoid fatigue better. Right. So that's what strength training is for endurance athletes. Right. Your muscles aren't working as hard every time you push on the pedals so they exactly. can last longer. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes perfectly good sense. Well, that's great. I wonder if we could kind of shift gears here a little bit. I mean, you as a coach, you as a athlete who probably has, who's doing very well, but made a lot of mistakes, no doubt, like anybody else who had to learn skills and habits that served you well by way of learning what didn't serve you well sometimes. Plus, as a medical doctor, I mean, perhaps that gives you even more insights, uh, exposure to things that I, I here want to ask you about. And that is, what would you say are the biggest mistakes that older athletes make? What have you seen? What do you think? I think the biggest thing that I see with older athletes is they try to do too much too quickly. Um, they, they, you know, that's an error you can make when you're younger because you can sustain it. But when you're older, if you try to go too hard, too fast, too much, you quickly realize your body's not able to do it. Uh, yeah. We see that in swimming um, with shoulder injuries. We yeah. see it in running, especially uh, because running is by far the highest injury, you know, source for triathletes, especially. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't see it as much in bikers because biker, you know, as a non-weight bearing sport, there doesn't tend to be as much uh, overuse type injuries in cycling. But you know, cyclists who come to the sport, they often spend too much money on a bike because they think that's the bike that makes them fast as opposed to putting in the effort and the time yeah. in the saddle before they actually, you know, I, I always say, you know, put more money into yourself before you put money into the equipment, because yeah. if you can, you know, do the work on yourself, then better equipment will make you faster as opposed to, you know, getting the fast equipment and then trying to catch up to your equipment. Um, yeah. Those are the main things. And I think the other thing is people are always looking for shortcuts. Um, you know, I, I understand it. I totally get it. Uh, you know, the, the people who make supplements, the people who make all the different tech, uh, they have fantastic marketing departments and they do a great job of, of salesmanship. And so people, you know, uh, will see 
the uh, the hype and will see the advertisements and believe that they can get faster, quicker if they you know use X, Y, or Z. And uh, yeah. invariably, that's not the case. the The reality is, is you just need to put in the work. Yeah, and even worse is not that they wasted their money. It's that they wasted their attention on things that won't matter or don't matter nearly enough instead of focusing on the things that will matter a great deal. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I want to say that I started doing this podcast with Glenn so that Glenn had his own reasons. My, my reason was that I was so aggravated that there was no really good information out there for the older athlete. And we were relying on marketing information, which is just lies. Hopefully we're helping people here and you on your own podcast helping people to be more knowledgeable and, you know, make fewer mistakes. Try anyways, right? That's all you can do. Give people the information and let them decide. Yeah. Well, that's great. We've sort of rather quickly gotten through the stuff that I had hoped that we would. And uh, if we've got a little more time, I'd, I'd like to touch on some specifics. You seem to be kind of a purist where you don't you don't take supplements and, you know, you don't use technology and, you, you know, you just... Uh, oh, I use a lot of tech. <laughs> okay, so let's... I use a lot of tech, but I just use the tech that I think is is helping me become better. So what is that? The tech that I use? Yeah. Uh, I'm probably more slavish, slavish to my power meter than my coach would like. Okay. Um, so I definitely am big on my power meter. Uh, I have like an electronic trainer in the basement. And, yeah. and, you know, the electronic trainer I have in my basement is for two reasons. Number one, as an emergency physician, I far too often see the results of collisions with uh, cyclists and cars. And so that uh, is very sobering. But the more important reason is just because as a very time crunched athlete, it's incredibly uh, time efficient for me to do most of my biking indoors. And while that's unfortunate because we live in such a beautiful cycling place, uh, the reality is, is that uh, as a physician, as a father, as a husband, uh, with a lot of responsibilities, it's just so much easier for me not to have to drive somewhere to ride my bike and then drive home. Uh, it's just easier for me to just jump on the trainer and get a very high quality workout. So I have that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, I've got all the GPS watches and GPS computers for my bike and Great. all that stuff. And But uh, yeah, all, all the tech that I have is generally related to my training and racing and and helping you to know how hard you're working and exactly that sort of thing yeah that's that's awesome yeah uh, glenn and i are big into uh, zwift yeah i've had many incredibly great workouts on my trainer and i'm a big fan and and i have uh, never had any close calls of getting run over when i've been on zwift <laughs> uh okay well that's great and so the the next area i wanted to ask you just a little bit about maybe tell us some of your secrets um which will be very practical since you're not into supplements is what are your nutritional secrets? Um, nutrition being, I would think very important for your ability to fuel yourself and recover from your efforts. What, what, you know, what is your philosophy on nutrition? Sure. What do you eat? Do you have superfoods, so, et cetera? I am mostly plant-based. Um, uh, I would be, I would be vegan, except that my wife is a meditarian. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got married, I wasn't plant-based. And so I didn't think it was totally fair to just go all vegan on her. So <laughs> I try to be plant-based uh, when I'm on my own. I, I try to be as vegan as possible. But yeah. uh, when I'm in the house, I, I do, uh, I will eat fish. Um, but for the most part, I try to stay as plant-based as possible. 
Um, I get my protein through, uh, you know, tofu or seitan or various uh, other types of products like okay. that. Um, I, I, it's funny cause we also, my wife and I are also enophiles. We have a very large wine cellar, oh. but when I'm in training, I do not touch alcohol. Okay. Uh, I have found that, uh, based on my own metabolism, alcohol immediately turns to fat and I have all kinds of problems keeping weight off. Mm. Uh, not that I am a huge guy or by any sense, but, uh, if I want to keep race weight, uh, it's hard for me to drink alcohol uh, and that's hard because we both love to drink wine. I love to have a beer. I actually love scotch. Yeah. So that's one thing that my recovery season is marked by from my last race until usually sometime early in January. Uh, I will drink uh, <laughs> more wine, more beer, more scotch. But uh, during the race season, I will not have any alcohol. And I think there's good research, not only to support, you know, the idea that alcohol is not great for weight, but also that it, it, it impairs, uh, performance. So, um, there, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that in terms of how I fuel, um, in races, uh, you know, I, I, one of those people who sweat a lot and so I need a lot of sodium. So I use, uh, I mean, I have no affiliation with them, but I use infinite, which is a product that I really like because it lets you dial in calories and salt and lets you personalize the, the uh -huh. uh, personalize specifically the amounts of the things that are within it. And it, uh -huh. it's worked very well for me. I know other people who it hasn't worked for, but you know these are one of those things that's trial and error and it's sure. just worked great for me. I also uh, love Scratch just because uh, it tastes good and gets me some you know, more sodium. Uh, and I like eating food. Uh, you know, it's really hard on a, on a long bike ride, especially on a hot day to actually consume food. Um, but I have found bars that I cut into little bite sized pieces. Uh, and I just make sure that I'm continually putting food in my belly because I realize that, uh, you know, just taking fluids is uh, a recipe for disaster. Uh, you know, you fill your stomach up with fluid. It doesn't like that. But if you put some solids in there, it uh, invariably seems to do better. Interesting. And so uh, I have had success with that on in racing. But, you know, the big thing about my normal day-to-day -day diet is I don't do anything dramatic. I feel like I make so many sacrifices for this. Like I... You know, I used to have a lot of hobbies. I don't do anything. I just train because <laughs> that's all I have time for with work and family and everything sure. else. Training takes up most of my free time. I don't want to be sacrificing too much on diet. So I eat like, you know, I have a bowl of ice cream every once in a while. I, uh, you know, I, I do the things that, you know, maybe a real hardcore athlete wouldn't do because I, I don't want this to make force me to give up too many things and sure. so like for example i know people who are very strict and regimented about their diet or follow very specific kinds of diet uh, keto is a great example and i'm like that's just not for me i'm not going to do that because it just seems too hard and it seems like too many sacrifices well you know i think people have got to manage their happiness you know and if their workouts are making them suffer i mean if they're their hobby is their exercise and it's making them miserable, making them fast, but miserable. Well, that can't be sustainable. So. Yeah. And everybody's motivated by different things. And I, I don't begrudge anybody who does things differently than I do. Uh, you know, whatever works for them and whatever makes people happy. That's uh, I I'm perfectly fine with that. 
All right. Well, so I guess the last thing would then be any kind of like lifestyle things that you do that maybe you think help you with your recovery, you know, like uh, sleep or or things for managing stress or, I mean, as an ER doctor, I imagine stress is a part of your life. Sleep is so hard. I'm sure you guys deal with it just <laughs> like I do. I mean, sleep is sleep is the bane of my existence. I, I, I you know, unfortunately, and, and this is a big issue as a shift worker. Um, you know, my shifts are, you know, seven to three, three to 11 or 11 to seven. And that, you know, for me, and I, and there's a lot of guys that I compete against that have regular nine to five jobs. Yeah. And so they can count on regular sleep hours. And, you know, I, I have to train when I'm fatigued because I've finished an overnight shift, for example. And, and that, that sets me back. I may be training as much or more than some other people, but because I'm doing so often when I'm fatigued. That means that the quality of my training is not going to be quite as high. And that's a real problem. And the other issue is just that I just don't sleep well. I mean, and of course, as you get older, you sleep less as well. So quality of sleep has always been a problem for me and frustrates me. And I just, you know, sometimes it's some nights I'll sleep well and some nights I don't. And I just, I just deal. I don't have any magic answers for that one. I wish I did. Um, as far as stress goes, I've always been pretty even keeled. I have, uh, um, you know, I think being an emergency physician, it, you know, to, to survive in that role, that, that, you know, that job, you kind of have to manage stress pretty well. Last year was by far the most stressful year of my life. And hmm. training, honestly, was my outlet and helped me stay sane. And um, training is the thing for me that helps me manage my stress. And so that's probably why I'm so dedicated to it and so consistent with it, because it's the thing when I miss training, I actually get more stressed, partly because I feel like I had to train, but also because I just know how much better it makes me feel. All right. That was really great. I appreciate you sharing some of your, uh, you know, your personal stuff with us to help us all be uh, better athletes. As we wrap up here, I, I wonder if, um, you know, if there's anything else you could say, which would be, again, this idea is older athletes like us, we want to be strong and fast and capable as athletes now, but we also want to remain athletic for a long time. You know, I often kid and say, oh, I don't want to do a bus tour of Italy when I'm 80. I want to do a bike tour. Got to be able to do more than just get up off the toilet when I'm 80 years old. If I'm going to be able to do that, what would you say would be the most important things for me to be doing now to have the best shot at that? Gosh, it's so hard to know, Joe. You know, it's it's funny. Satchel Page said, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? And I, I have lived by that. I, I really, I think that in a lot of ways, age is a state of mind. You're as old as you think you are. But the reality is, is that it catches up, right? I mean, yeah. at some point, things will catch up to you because that's just biology. I think the longer you can stay active, the longer you keep moving, uh, then the better off you will be. Uh, I think that, you know, doing the little things, I think strength training is really key. I think that, you know, just weight, you know, you can't let yourself get overweight because the second you get overweight as an older individual, losing that weight becomes really difficult. Yeah. Uh, So if I was going to sort of sum it up, it would be keep a youthful mindset, keep your weight under control, keep moving always and find something you love and do it. 
just do it, whatever that is. If it's walking, that's great. If it's hiking, if it's biking, if it's if it's running, it's running. If it's water running, whatever it is, just find the thing you love and love doing it, and it will propel you forward. That's awesome. Well, that's great advice. I'm, I'm going to take that advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Sankoff, thank you very much. Uh, how should we tell people to find you if they wanted to find your podcast or maybe you're on Twitter or, or social media and they wanted to reach out to you. I'm all over the place, but uh, yeah, so you could find me, I guess the easiest way is uh, tridoccoaching.com. That's my website. Uh, and uh, the Tridoc podcast, which is just tridocpodcast.com. Okay. That's uh, where you could find, you could find links to where to subscribe for the podcast. And um, yeah, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter as I'm, I'm all over awesome. the place, but yeah, if you just, uh, you uh, you can look for me as uh, Tridoc Coaching, and you will come up with me on Instagram and all the different socials. Excellent. Well, I'll get all those links and put them on the show notes, so anybody who didn't take notes here will be able to find them there. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Yes. Very good. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you so much for listening into my discussion on high performance for Masters Endurance Athletes with Dr. Jeff Sankoff, the Tridoc. And thanks to Dr. Sankoff for taking some time to share his knowledge. You can find more information about Dr. Sankoff and the TriDoc podcast in the show notes. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address in the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you're on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.